transfers, all right? It's a, it's a really, really, really weird business to get your head around. It's, it can be shady at times, it can be really confusing, but what is most interesting, I think, from just a neutral perspective is when you see all of the various different cogs and rotations happen within a transaction that shouldn't normally happen when you're dealing with what it's supposed to be. So if ideally in a transfer, you would just have one player who wants to leave one club and go to another. The club that they want to go to wants them back and the club that is, you know, resigned to selling them is happy to take a certain fee, a certain price and it marries up well and everyone's happy right? That is the best case scenario. And don't get me wrong, it happens. That does happen. Not, I don't, I can't really say how often or how not, but the ones we hear about in the news and in the headlines are probably the ones that don't have one of those cogs working in the machine. And that's what makes them so interesting. We always want to find out what happened. Like, why did this not happen? What would you mean he could have moved here? Like, and at Ultra United, this is where we go into this sort of thing. We have a dedicated part of our website called the Transfer Hub at www.ultrautd.com. And that's where we go into some of the stories you probably haven't heard about, some of them you thought you knew about, but then we take a bit of a different twist on it in light of what we've been able to research and find out. And today, I mean, we are talking about one of the craziest transfer domino effects in the world. Now, we all know what a domino effect is, right? One thing happens and it then leads to a succession of other things happening. And that's what we're talking about here in the transfer market. Because take, let's just go back to that example that I gave you of what an ideal transfer looks like. One player wants to move to another club and all the other parties are there to facilitate that happening. So the club wants them, they want the club, their previous club is happy to sell. That's not the end of the argument and it never will be because no matter how good that player was or how much money you receive from that player, when you lose a starting footballer and when you lose a key member of your team, you're going to need to recruit a backup. You're going to need to recruit a replacement and that's where the domino takes takes on because then what if everything was right fine with your transaction but then when you go and try and get someone else's player as a backup or as a replacement they're not as happy with losing their player as you were with losing yours. And now they're desperate because now that you've taken their player, they have to go and find someone else. And it just keeps going down this gruesome trickle effect until someone loses out. There's always going to be someone losing out. This situation that I'm talking about today is one of the strangest one, but in context is one of the most remarkable like marriage of transfer dealings that I've ever seen. Right, I had to do a lot of research for my uh, book, which is now available on Amazon Prime called The Football Spiderweb. And in that, I was quite surprised to see how many revelations there were about players who could have moved somewhere or players that wanted to but couldn't. And all the other reaction that had to happen in the market for these things to happen. And in this, there's so many different things to get through and I'm gonna try my best to just keep it in a succinct timeline. And in order to do that, it needs a beginning. And the beginning here is in 2002. Now, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't really know it, if I'm honest. I kind of had an idea, but transfer windows were only introduced in 2002 by FIFA, which meant that as it is today, and as it probably will be for the foreseeable future, if you want to get a transfer done, it has to happen within a window of time. So they're usually in the off season or in the January window, which a lot of people say might be scrapped, but most likely in the summer, for one player to permanently transfer from one club to another, 
they have to have done that entire transaction within this window of time, which is usually between six and eight weeks. Obviously, with COVID, things changed for this season, but that's generally what we what we think of. And it's only been introduced recently in the Premier League and other European leagues that it has to be done even before the season kicks off, which is which for me is is the right call. Before that, things could really like if you if one player played well against you. Uh, one day and then the next day you were like yeah I'll have him and things married up well that could happen but in the transfer window you you can't do that and it's had a number of effects in terms of um, mentalities behind the boardrooms at certain clubs and also the agents that are involved the players as well because now it's not really up to them when they can move and that's always going to be a bit difficult but some of them have found out ways to make it work for them but we're in 2002 when it is a pretty new prospect And at that time, a certain red club in Manchester, right? It's got a United at the end of it. They were experiencing quite a big slump in and around that period. Because if we think about it, three years before that in 1999, Manchester United did something that no club had ever done and no English club has since been able to do. Liverpool came pretty close last year, but Manchester United were able to win the Premier League, the FA Cup, and the UEFA Champions League all in a single season. Now, a lot has been said about it in terms of how how they did it and all the stories and the comebacks and like how great all of that was. But what it ended up doing and showing to Sir Alex Ferguson and the other board members at Manchester United is that their team had peaked. At that time, they were at least peaking or had peaked. When you look at the majority of that squad, Peter Schmeichel was in goal. He then left for Sporting Lisbon straight after that triumph, which left a huge gap in goal, which they weren't able to fill probably five or six years later when Van der Sar came in. You had Dennis Irwin, who was also towards the end of his era at the club. Um, Andy Cole and Dwight York were about were going to leave in the next couple of years because um, Fergie was looking for a certain calibre of striker that he thought they were slowly decaying from. Teddy Sheringham, was own, I, th- I think he was born old <laughs> when he came into football because he was also ageing at that time. And a lot of these things were starting to pan out. But one of the key things that I've picked up on and I think a lot of people have, is that in 1999, when that team had peaked, not only had that happened, but there was a whole new level and aura to Manchester United as a whole. So I think all the success and all of the recruitment steps that Sir Alex Ferguson took to to get them to that point, he forgot. And he instead, and it's not just him, it's probably the rest of the recruitment team as well, they wanted to bring in players who were worthy of this now incredible treble winning Manchester United squad, which kind of meant bringing in overseas players and expensive recruits to come in and automatically embed themselves within a title winning team. And as we've seen time and time again, that doesn't work out, right? He brought in the likes of Fabian Bartes, Lauren Blanc, um, I think, yeah, Ru Van Nistelrooy, Juan Sebastian Varon. Out of all of them, I would have said just Van Nistelrooy and maybe Blanc were the ones that actually, you know, held themselves in good stead. But even then, it was always going to be difficult for them to to really embed themselves in the way in the system that was happening, especially when a lot of these stalwarts like Irwins, like Yashmichaels were leaving. So Manchester United were in a bit of a slump. And when you have experienced that kind of high, the rest of the players who were still there are going to be thinking, well, what's going on here then? And I imagine there's some sort of tension rising in the ranks as they're not winning as many games, not being as consistent, not being the Manchester United that we've all come to know and love. And underpinning the entire squad was the class of 92. Giggs, Scholes, Neville, Butt, Beckham, right? All of them were underpinning that entire squad. 
But now they're probably disenchanted with what's going on. They're thinking, well, we've been used to this. Where's, where's this kind of figure? Where's that kind of figure? Why aren't things coming into place? And then tensions basically boil over between one of these players and Sir Alex Ferguson. And it was David Beckham. David Beckham at the time was dating a Spice Girl, you know, he dated Posh. Um, it was pretty new at that time. Like social media wasn't as rampant as it is today. So a hell of a lot of media attention coming to a football player for that reason was pretty was more alien than it is today. Not completely so, but but definitely more so. And Beckham was, I mean, he's golden boy. He was the golden boy of, of England. And, um, you know, World Cup aside, but he was, everyone loved Bex and any story to get out of him was always going to be something at the forefront of news and of people's minds when it came to writing things about him. Sir Alex Ferguson isn't the kind of manager who likes that sort of thing. He he never has been and, well, I was going to say never will be, but I don't think that will ever change with him. And so when Beckham's getting all this adulation and maybe he's not playing as well as he had been before, tension began to grow between the pair of them where probably Beckham's thinking he's given all he can and Sir Alex is thinking you're more concerned with your playboy lifestyle and your party boy looks than you are with playing for Manchester United. It it came to a head at the point where Beckham wanted to leave. And it was, it's was it been no secret. It's, it's no secret that, you know, since then Bex and uh, Sir Alex have, you know, patched things up and they're happy. But none of them regret it. It, it just seemed to be a point in their in their developments as players and managers, that it was time to to move on. And that happens in football. It was just a question of where Beckham would go. And I've I've always said, and I say many times on um, ultraunited.com, is that Beckham is probably one of the most underrated players ever. And I, the reason I say that is because people will look at Beckham or think about Beckham and they'll think free kicks, crossing and passing. That's it. No. They forget his stamina, they forget his leadership, his ability to bounce back, his teamwork, his link-up play, his vision. The guy was incredible. And I, when I do watch old games back of any team, if Beckham's in there, whether it's for whoever he played for after Manchester United, which we'll get to, then I'm a happy guy. If Beckham's in there, he's one of those players that just helps you fall in love with it. And I'm, I'm not the only one who thinks that. But I do feel like he's under, underrated and... When you think about the calibre of clubs that he was able to attract at that time, it just proves my point. AC Milan, Inter Milan, they were all, all these big clubs were, were in for him, but there were two in particular that really wanted him. And I mean really wanted him, but for very different reasons. And this is where it all gets a bit strange. So it's quite simple here. Beckham is not having a good time at Man United. Manager said he can leave. He's going to leave. That's what that's where we've gotten to now in around 2003. <laughs> And then the two clubs who want him are Barcelona and Real Madrid. Barcelona were actually first. Barcelona wanted him first. The reason they wanted him, and this is me going out on a bit of a limb, a bit of a limb, right? I personally think that they were jealous. At the time, Barcelona were lagging quite far behind Real Madrid. Not just in terms of what they were able to do on the pitch, but also commercially and in terms of being a brand and being a big ambassador for Spanish football. And the reason for that is because in the year 2000, Real Madrid had decided to go on this incredible, incredible spree called the Galactico presidential policy. And it was involved when Florentino Perez, in his big address to the Real Madrid clan in 2000, said, you know what? My philosophy, when I come in, if you elect me as your president, I will commit to making sure that we sign one, at least one world-class player every single year. 
So remember the windows came in shortly after? Every single year, I will buy at least one incredible world-class player. And he was doing it. He started off by buying Luis Figo from Barcelona, right? Which really couldn't couldn't have felt nice. Uh, paying like 71 million euros, I think it was, for Figo. At that time, like even now that would be insane. But at that time, a hell of a lot of money. And then around 80 to 90 million on Zinedine Zidane in 2001. And then about 50 or 60 million on Ronaldo. Il Fenomeno, the Ronaldo, who had just won the World Cup with Brazil in 2002. Barcelona are watching all of this. They don't have the finances that, or the commitment to finances that Real Madrid had at the time. And Real Madrid, bear, bear in mind as well, even though when, when footballers buy, when, when teams buy football players, it's not always recouping that amount of money by what they're able to do on the pitch or what competitions they win. That's only part of it. What about all the kids who are buying Zidane shirts, Ronaldo shirts and Figo shirts? All of these commercial empires that you're able to now bring forward because you've got these world-class players in and people who now want to see you from all over the world and that leads to broadcasting and media revenue. It, it just spirals. Barcelona weren't benefiting from that. And if anything, they were losing the spotlight because Barcelona were one of the best teams, were probably the best team in the world maybe a decade before. And they're losing that shine to Real Madrid, their strongest and most deepest competitors. So they see Beckham and of course they're probably thinking, you know, Beckham's an incredible talent for all the the reasons that I've just listed. However, they're seeing him and they now think, right, we need to we need to get him because he's probably the next world class player for Real Madrid to get, right? It's only I'm, I am speaking a bit hyperbolic and that that is like I am theorizing over that. But I'd be very surprised if it wasn't in their mind. So they put down a bid of around, I think it was about 16 or 17 million quid. At the time, it was a fair amount for Beckham. I think he had about two years left on his contract or maybe even one. So he was always going to go and he was a motivated, Man United were a motivated seller. He was ready to go. So they weren't going to hold out for a bigger fee, but Barcelona did the deal. It got to the point where they were trying to get Beckham to sign personal terms with them. And then Real Madrid come in. And they say, hang on, forget your, we'll take your 17 and raise you 25. We'll pay 25 for Beckham. And Barcelona couldn't keep up. Beckham was sold the dream, the Galactico dream. And um, to be honest, like the idea of playing with Zidane and Figo and Ronaldo, it was only going to go one way. And Beckham ended up becoming the next Galactico. He was the fourth in line uh, to join Los Blancos in, in 2003. Now, get in the mind of the Barcelona dressing room. Let's take, let's take us all to Catalonia. We're in there. We're in the Barcelona dressing room. We're thinking, oh, okay, these, these stupid, like, Real Madrid people, oh, I hate them so much, or oh, something in Spanish. And then we're thinking, oh, we've got a way to, to get at them here. Beckham's free. All right, let's get him, let's get him, let's get him. All right, he's signing, he's signing, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. We've got Beckham, we've got Beckham. Oh. We lost again. So what does that do to your mentality? What does that do? How do you feel? You feel jealous. You feel spiteful. You feel like you want to make sure the next deal you get is the best one possible. But now we've got another two sets of sellers, haven't we? Or two sets of buyers, I should say. Because it started off with Man United just wanting to get rid of Beckham. Or Beckham wanting to leave. Now, Real Madrid have bought him. So that solved one problem, right? Manchester United have sold Beckham. They've got the money for Beckham. Good amount as well. But now they have to replace Beckham. 
And then in Barcelona's mind, they have to replace Beckham. It was so far down the line that it was almost nailed on that he was going to join. And so Barcelona just thought it was done. And now to not have it there, it's like losing Beckham in the first place. And Manchester United actually lost him. So now you have Manchester United and Barcelona kind of inadvertently going head to head to buy someone in the market who was of the same or if not a better calibre than David Beckham. At the time, there was a few names being passed around. I can't really remember any of them being as concrete as the one that they ended up going for. I know Iron Robin was getting some good traction for his time at PSV and there were some others that were kind of being batted around the media, but nothing too substantial. It was all kind of superfluous uh, speculation at that point. But then Ronaldinho came into someone's head and Manchester United had been long-term admirers of Ronaldinho. From his time at Gremio, moving through to PSG, he was one of the biggest stars on the continent and certainly in French football, which is nowhere near where it was at the time and neither was PSG anywhere where it was today and Ronaldinho is playing well he's got the star quality he's got the commercial factor he's fitting into that Manchester United DNA but he's also fitting into the Barcelona DNA and out of the two the more motivated buyer is who ended up signing Ronaldinho and that was Barcelona Barcelona was so annoyed that they lost out to Real Madrid and they were so determined to make sure they wouldn't be left at the races again that they signed Ronaldinho and paid over the odds for him. They paid roughly the same amount that Real Madrid paid to Beckham for Ronaldinho, who also had around the same amount of um, time left on his contract as Beckham did at Manchester United. So we have this sort of weird setup now where Manchester United must feel like, what the hell have we done? What have we done? Why did we get rid of Beckham? And why the hell didn't we fight more for Ronaldinho? Why didn't we make sure, if anything, that we had a replacement lined up to replace Beckham? What do we do now? We've got a number seven shirt up for grabs. Where does it go? All the while, Real Madrid are happy with their recruit. Barcelona are happy with theirs. And it's coming up to the start of the new season, the 2004 season. And as in the 03-04 season. And Man United are still going through their pre-season like, what what are we going to do? And then Sir Alex Ferguson's assistant, Carlos Quiroz, a man who's very well known in Portugal, very well known back home for his scouting ability, but also for how much respect he gets as a coach back there. He says to Sir Alex, there's a young boy by the name of Cristiano Ronaldo playing for Sporting Lisbon, who I think we should have a look at. There wasn't really much time before the start of the new season for Manchester United to go out and watch him like they would any other, t- any other player. So instead, Carlos was like, well, Sporting Lisbon, the team that he was playing for, they're actually moving into a new stadium. How about we fly out there? We take the initiative. We go out there and put on an exhibition game to welcome their fans to their new stadium. And it was genius. It was absolutely genius. Not only was it a good marketing ploy, right, to get a few more Portuguese eyes on the Manchester United brand and and all that good stuff, but... They were now able to test this Cristiano Ronaldo kid against their own team. And at the time, Manchester United were, they were stuttering, but they were still one of the best teams in the league. So it just stands to reason that if this Cristiano fella can do well against Manchester United defence, he can do the same and get better as time goes on against other Premier League defences. And he was right. On that day, Cristiano Ronaldo, it was his day. 
is, is, is known now as the Cristiano Ronaldo day when he took the ball up on, when he first took the ball on against John O'Shea, who was his adversary for the, for most of the game, it was only going to go one way, all right? Ronaldo made him look stupid. And every single player, particularly the class of 92, were very impressed with the kid. And this is where it all gets just fateful, if anything. Because if we remember right back at the beginning of the story, the class of 92 were the underpinnings of the Manchester United team. One of them, in Fergie's eyes, fell out of line. And yet, it took the other other lads, the Giggs, the Skulls, Butts, Nevilles, to say, hang on, this kid, we need to get him. They were very influential in swaying Sir Alex's eyes to make sure that they got Cristiano Ronaldo. It wasn't something like, you know, don't get me wrong, it wasn't like Sir Alex was depending on them to give them a good review, but it certainly helped. And all of them have come out since and said that that was the case. So moving forward, you have a situation where it started off as just Manchester United looking to sell David Beckham to Real Madrid and getting a replacement. Then you have a team close by that stays a bit jealous of what's going on and pinches that replacement. So now their backup's backup comes in the form of some wonky tooth teenager from Portugal and he ends up being better at that club than Ronaldinho was at Barcelona and Beckham was at Real Madrid. It's insane, isn't it? (laughs) When you think of it that way, the only team in this whole scenario, in this like kind of weird triangular relationship, the only team that ended up getting their number one target was the one that was worse off from the deal. Because I will say to you that I think Ronaldinho at Barcelona did way better than David Beckham did at Real Madrid and Cristiano Ronaldo at Manchester United did better than all of them. It's insane and it's it's going to be, this type of story is going to be one that doesn't end here. It's, it's going to happen so many different times. And on the Transfer Hub and on various parts of Ultra United, we are going to be delving into all of these topics. And here on the podcast, I mean, it's not just a place where we talk about transfers or talk about Man United, as a lot of people have said. You know, the whole point of being called Ultra United is because if you want to be a fan of a team, consider yourself to be an ultra, you know, the non-threatening, non-horrible you know, horrible kind, then all you really want to do is find out more about the game, more about how it works, And some of the stories that have happened back then, but also what could happen in the future. And that's what this podcast is all about. So, I mean, if you did enjoy it, and if you're listening on YouTube, definitely drop a like on the video. As we know, in the algorithm, it's all about likes and all about comments and all that. So if you can get in the comments and let me know if I taught you anything new, or even what you want to hear on the next one. You know, we're doing these sorts of podcasts kind of as and when they come to us. And we want to make sure that we're putting out the right content for you. So... Definitely get in the comments and let me know what you think about this. If you're listening on Spotify or, you know, Apple Podcasts or Google Play, like, just thank you so much for supporting the journey so far. And it's going to be one that I'm really looking forward to to continuing and share us around if you really like what we're doing. We, we really want to make a point of connecting with you guys, finding out more about your own stories as well, because that's what this platform is all about. So definitely drop a like on the video, share our streams around if you're able to, um, and give us a follow on social media, which is all at UltraUTD. And remember, you can be uploaded or updated daily 
uh, on ultrautd.com. That was a big mouthful. I'm going to have to fix that for future <laughs> uploads. But you get the gist, all right? Stay close to the conversation. And more importantly, stay safe in our current climate. And we'll see you on our next episode.